Howdy, friends. Welcome back. Today's show is really cool, sponsored by the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network. You know, we talk about lobby groups all the time, oil and gas and cigarettes and whatnot, but there's a cancer patient lobby group, and that's exactly what this is. Joining me in studio is Kate Weissman, a young adult cervical cancer survivor and the state lead ambassador for the ACS CAN Network of Massachusetts. Joining her is Ian Locke here in studio, a PhD student in molecular cancer biology at Duke University and a congressional district member of the ACSCIN network in North Carolina. We're going to talk about converting your anger into action and what lobbying and legislation really does to help people maybe not go broke from cancer or knowing a drug exists or getting a drug approved or having it available to you and activating Americans to make healthcare suck less for everyone. So before we get started, feel free to check out fightcancer.org slash pod. That's fightcancer.org slash pod to learn how you can force the government to do the right thing and help cancer patients around the country. And thank you again to the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network for making today's show possible. Let's get started. All right, guys, I'm here with Kate Weissman and Ian Locke two young adult cancer survivors. We're here to talk about how you fight back against, I won't say the bad words, but I'll just say shenanigans in healthcare. How's that? Sounds great. You two entered the uh, the Crap Happens store. See, I'm, I'm being PG-13 today for our sponsor, the American Cancer Society. When the Crap Happens store happens to you, you don't want to shop in there. You didn't expect to have this. And then life gets uprooted. I was 21 diagnosed in the 90s, but you guys were diagnosed in the 2010s. Right? Different universe. So let's start with a teenager. Pre-Dr. Ian, you were in high school? I was. You were not pre-Dr. Ian. You were just Ian. I, I mean, I guess I was technically pre-Dr. Ian, but it was pre-pre-Dr. Ian. <laughs> and just regular, normal high school student, living your life, doing your stuff. Yeah. I was playing football in a, one of my sophomore year football games, and I got hit, and I came out of the game for just a couple of minutes and they said well like it's probably fine go back in play the rest of the game went to the trainer the next day and he said well it's probably fine but we'll send you to an orthopedic surgeon they found a dark spot on the bone and kind of the rest is you know one week later i had started my first chemo so it was a kind of from one day i was a normal high school student and one week later i took nine months off I should tell the listeners, because, you know, this, this is a, a listening medium. You are like, what, 6'4"? Six, 6'2". Six, okay. A little over, yeah. Being a football player makes sense to me. Yeah. And, I mean, you talked about in previous podcasts that you were 21 in a pediatric oncology unit. Well, I was, yeah, 6 feet 2, 230 pounds fitting into these. They had to special order all of my beds before I got there. Uh-huh. Everything was too short. It, yeah, it was not made for my size human being in pediatric <laughs> oncology wards. Pros and cons of being uh, a teenager who's has the physique of a, I don't know, a, I don't know, football, like a quarterback? I was a middle linebacker, okay. but I was kind of a small one. Okay. I wasn't going to, I mean, I wasn't going to go pro. That's absolutely for sure. Fair enough. And you, my lady, Ms. Weissman. Hello. You were, what, were you newly married? 
couple of years. Okay. A couple of years. Yeah, because there's no good time for this to happen, but, you know, kind of just getting your life together, right? Getting High school, newly married, yeah. Yeah, and, like, I was so excited for my 30s. I've always been so excited for my 30s, and I was like, yeah, I'm finally 30. And then a couple months later, you know, my world cracked in half, and I got the diagnosis in October of 2016, 2015. So cervical is not the good one. It's not the good one. None <laughs> yeah. of them. Oh, wait, did I think you ever hear you got the good one? I mean, I definitely thought that. Kind of when you look up the statistics, you're like, oh, this could be worse. But that doesn't mean you got the good one. Right. So what were your uh, your symptoms, Kate? Well, you know, it's funny. I had been on the birth control pill for many, many years. I went off the birth control pill a couple months before my diagnosis because I was preparing to be my husband's kidney donor. My husband was in need of a kidney transplant, and the plan was for me to be his donor. And they said in order for to prep for the surgery, you need to be off the birth control pill for so many years. So I had irregular bleeding, and that was like, oh, maybe my body's just adjusting to not being on the birth control pill. The biggest red flag for cervical cancer patients is I started having bleeding after intercourse. And that's when my gynecologist said, okay, we got to do a colposcopy and see what's going on. And so thank God she followed her gut. And, you know, she called me and told me this is what we found. And Dana-Farber is going to be calling you tomorrow to set you up with your first appointment with your oncologist. All right. As egregious as that is, I want to go back for a second. You were going to give your husband a kidney. I was. Let's not skip over that. That's yeah. love. That, you know what? He reminds me every day, though, now. He <laughs> saved my life because, you know, if it wasn't for this. So, yeah, we were – I was absolutely ready to do it, get my body ready for the surgery. Weirdly, the universe kind of looked out for us. When I was going through my treatment, his levels kind of – his numbers kind of leveled out, and we were able to delay his uh, surgery for a couple of years. And luckily, his sister stepped up and gave him her kidney, so he's doing great now. But love is crazy, and we were certainly thrown into the thick of it, and we were putting our vows to the test at that point. Yeah. So I, I come to this with this – unusually privileged history and perspective, having been through the 90s, the 2000s, with all this. and the, the whole idea, just fun fact of the day, the words young adult cancer didn't exist before we invented it. Right. Those, those are not three words in diagnosis and treatment that existed before. So it's like Gen X and millennials, like, okay, it'd be nice to be recognized. We're not Timmy and grandpa, Right. And yet we're treated like Timmy and grandpa. So why can't we be treated as if we were not eight or 80? Uh, I'll just I'll just <laughs> turn this to Ian. Did you feel outside of being in pediatrics that they thought you were not eight? I think I was remarkably privileged to have an oncology team that kind of took a step back and made me feel like I was kind of going to be an adult. And so I was 16 years old and I I think they trusted me a lot more than I trusted myself and probably maybe more than they should have trusted me. But I mean, they had really frank conversations about my prognosis, about the way that they were going to treat me and about my options, especially kind of, you know, at 16, I was not thinking about children or fertility. And they had really frank conversations and I, I think at 16, those weren't conversations that I was ready to have, but they were conversations that needed to be had. And they kind of brought a lot of grace that I have heard from so many other kind of pediatric, like older pediatric patients that didn't have the same opportunity. I mean, my mom drove me to the sperm bank. Awkward. Did you have a similar situation? Oh, yeah. I actually think my parents were in, like they dropped 
Uh, we all went. Like my parents were with me. We, it, yeah, it was a terrible, terrible experience. So back to Kate. So when young adult cancer became a thing in the two thousands, a lot of people were like, well, why are you so special? Which is GFU, right? <laughs> but at the same time, like, yeah, because it's not better or worse. It's different. And fertility, kind of a thing that's kind of. unique to not being eight or eighty. You had mentioned before the show that you were made aware of reproductive preservation prior to getting involved in all the nitty gritty shenanigans. That's I, I would think that's rare. In the same appointment. Yeah. I mean, in the same appointment that my oncologist, you know, walked in, she said, we looked at your scans, you know, your cancer, your stage 2B, it's in your lymphatic system already. We got to move quickly. You will also never be able to carry children. So if you want to do IVF and we can, you know, create some embryos in the next couple of weeks before your radiation and chemotherapy starts, we can do that. I was as scary as that moment was. And as I described that appointment as a bomb that just kept exploding, I was so grateful that she had the foresight to give me that option. And I was lucky that I that I took her up on it and, you know, was able to be safe about when my treatment started and have fertility preservation at that point. It's just the luck of chaos. You happen to be yeah. in this place and you happen to be with this doctor and they happen to know these things to tell you about. Yes, that's success compared to all the data from the 2000s that nine out of 10 women are not told you can do this, even if they have to start treatment Monday. And we were seeing back then Young women were delaying their treatments right. by months at a time just to make sure they might be moms one day. Right. And now hopefully that's less, but it sounds like you're on the road. Actually, you already were on the road to parenthood. Yeah. I mean, my my baby girl was born 18 months ago and we brought her into the world via surrogacy. And I again, but I'm I'm privilege that I had that choice, right? I live in a state that covered my IVF and I'm lucky that my husband and I had the financial means to ha have a surrogate, but a lot of families don't even have that option. So we need also to make it accessible for more people because it's really just a place of privilege that I was able to bring her into this world. Right, right. And and we're going to get to how to lobby and how to force the government to do stuff. Ian, you're in a uh, maybe a less than stellar state from that perspective. And I just want to get off my uh, I want to get off my chest. I have to say Fond du Lac many, many times. It's the, one of the best cities in the country, Fond du Lac. Only because you have to, it's so alliterative. Does it live up to a hype? Not particularly. I mean, unless you're into walleye fishing tournaments that and sturgeon spearing, there's a lot of fish-related <laughs> activities. But unless those are your primary modes of fun, maybe does not live up to the hype. So you, you mentioned before that you felt you were treated like age-appropriately. And again, we're going to get into how to lobby and how to, how to bug the crap out of the government to get things done and do the right things. But do you feel like there's a little more friction in your state than what you're hearing from other folks that are part of the program? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, a lot of that friction not only just happens within my state, but outside of my care team. Like I just had so much privilege in the oncologist, the nurses that I worked with, the surgical oncologist that I worked with really prioritized me and my situation and my needs. And I it was kind of not until after my own experience that I learned about how different it can be when people don't have access to the kind of resources that I had. And that was both kind of from a care perspective, but also from a financial perspective. My community had a lot of outpouring of support, both financial and food, and kind of just like making my family able to focus on my own treatment. And part of that was 
kind of being able to invest in sperm banking, which isn't free. And kind of every year we we have to pay, I think it's $180 to $200 a year, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but I've been doing that for 10 years now. And I'm kind of just now starting to think about, okay, what does that mean for my future in starting a family? So it's kind of, I was remarkably privileged in so many ways. Again, we talk about like the level of privilege when accessing these kinds of resources. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I got into advocacy is realizing that other people don't have that same access. All right. I can't wait to get cancer and join the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network said no one ever. Nope. I like to find out how you found out about things because this goes back to, I believe, when you're diagnosed, there's three things. Well, today there's three things. There's Google. There's chaos and there's your care team. I mean, well, it was just there was just chaos and doctors in the 1990s. Maybe some AOL chat rooms. I have no idea. So, Kate, you mentioned before the show that when you were diagnosed, you kind of wanted to go into a more of a structured isolation to work this out with yourself and your husband and your family. And you, you took a very preventative state of not doctor googling yourself to death. Ian, did you find yourself in a similar headspace, or were you really like? What is this? I want to know. I mean, you're a researcher almost by DNA, right? Did that kick in at all in, in your pre-pre-doctor stage? No, actually, it didn't. Um, when I was diagnosed and when I went through all of these kind of meetings that during that first week with my oncology team, they said a lot of things like you're not a number, these statistics are not specific to you. You're, we are going to treat you as the patient, the singular patient that you are, and we're going to work with you throughout this process to make sure that those survival statistics are not based on you. And I think I was really, really fortunate in that kind of a lot of things went my way and I was able to trust them. And they truly did kind of have my best interests at heart. But I know that my mom did not do the same thing. So she kind of went full mom mode. And she has, I mean, I think still to this day, like six binders of every treatment side effect. So, you know, the heart problems from doxorubicin, the infertility of cisplatin, like all of these things were things that she was acutely aware of. And those were things where I would leave the room when my parents were discussing my prognosis with my oncology team because I knew that it wasn't going to contribute to my health, both mental and physical health, to understand truly how bad it was. When I met my first peer, like seven years later, like 2002, he happened to work for a group called the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, which also worked in tandem with the ACS Cancer Action Network. And he asked me point blank, how would you like to be a cancer advocate? And I said, what the bleep is a cancer advocate? I didn't know what that meant at the time. And is it still user defined? Because you can do so many different things with wanting to pay it forward or taking your anger into action. Like, Kate, what are your thoughts on this? When you open yourself up back to the world, what did you discover? Well, I discovered how ticked off I was yes. and how I could certainly turn my pain into my power. I learned... It was just a light bulb moment for me when I discovered ACS Can because I had been actually in event fundraising for a lot of my life. And just whenever I thought about fighting the fight against cancer, I always just thought about raising money. And that's incredibly 
critical. But I never thought about the legislative side of things. I never thought about how I could actually move the needle um, in a much more tangible way. And so when I learned about what ACS Can does, when I learned go to Congress and you meet with lawmakers on the Hill and talk to them about supporting policies that could really improve the lives of cancer patients and their families, I was like, that's where I need to be. I can talk to people. I am passionate slash pissed off right now. And so I I need to take my anger and I need to put it here. I can't have like a fundraising event where I'm like acting happy and raising money. And, you know, I couldn't do that. That's not where I was. So that's kind of where I landed and I'm very happy to have done so. Similar, Ian, similar. I think I have evolved in my anger towards the way that legislation impacts cancer patients. I think I was really fortunate in that I had access to care. I had access to like top quality care. And once I started doing research into the treatment specifically that I was given during my treatment, that's when I truly understood how the lack of progress in my specific disease. So one of the chemotherapy treatments that I was given or all of them have not been changed since 1970 was when the last time an amendment was introduced into my protocol. And I mean, that was 40 years before I was treated. And it kind of thinking about all the horrible side effects that I went through during my treatment and then thinking about, okay, if we would have invested more in research funding, if we would have invested more in kind of just understanding how this disease progresses and how even a predisposition or kind of any of those things, if we would have understood it about my disease, maybe it would have been different. And I, again, I like realized how lucky I was, but there are so many people in my position that weren't that lucky, that experienced worse side effects, had a worse overall survival, had a recurrence and didn't survive. And that's like, I became more and more upset about the lack of progress being a defining factor in my disease. And the fact that research funding has a huge impact on the progress that we make. I I mean, I think when you go through cancer, you think, okay, these are the best treatments that we have to offer. And so many doctors across the country are doing research in my disease and trying to make my experience better. And that idea is truly constrained by the government's input into it. And that, again, that's only evolved. And kind of as I got more into sarcomas and rare diseases, the more uncommon your disease, the more difficult it is to get kind of specific funding for that. And I kind of objectively understand that if more people are impacted by the disease, like lung cancer and breast cancer, that there's more money that's funneled into those kinds of things. But the impact on a child that is diagnosed with a rare sarcoma is lifelong. And it's lifelong for their families and themselves and their entire communities. And to not prioritize that in medical research is, I mean, again, it's an evolving sense of anger. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break and be back with Kate and Ian after the following messages sponsored by The Gift That Keeps On Giving. We'll be right back.
All right, we're back. Kate, you mentioned before at the uh, top half of the show that the, the I think the knee-jerk reaction to helping fight cancer is donate, donate, donate. Fundraiser, gala, bronze, gold, you know, silver sponsorships. But there's a whole, almost like an, uh, an underbelly side of this that may not be so obvious or self-evident, which is let's fight the government. <laughs> <laughs> I guess a throwaway question is, you know, when did you realize that the government is run by 22-year-old staffers? <laughs> the first time I went to Capitol Hill, I was like, oh, hello. Yeah. And they were ambitious and listening and, you know, really overzealous. And it was wonderful to meet them. But yeah, that was that was an aha moment for me, meeting the staffers. Right. So in the spirit of policy matters, like, <laughs> let's actually talk through that, because I, ho- I hope some of our listeners are going to go to fightcancer.org slash pod. That's fightcancer.org slash pod, folks, and see how you can go nibble at the government's, uh, you know, <laughs> underbelly. Yeah, exactly. So what was your first experience? Like, what were you there for specifically? Oh, my gosh. My first experience, I think I did state lobby day in Massachusetts first before I went to the Hill. And that allowed me to kind of understand how these meetings go, who I'm actually going to be meeting with. It's rarely ever the lawmaker. It's always a staff member. The flow of the meeting, how fast the meeting is. You need to get your ask out pretty quickly. The follow up, all of that. And then I went to Capitol Hill not long after that. And yeah, it was overwhelming. There were 600 of us that just ascended on the Capitol in our blue polo shirts. And we were there and we were there to with three very specific asks. We had been trained, you know, by by all of our ACS CAN staff members. And it was an incredibly uplifting experience. I remember just feeling like, yeah, I'm making a difference because these lawmakers were like, sure. Yeah, I'll co-sponsor that bill. Thank you. And we turned up the noise and you have to turn up the noise. These lawmakers have thousands of bills that come across their desk every day. And if they don't hear from the cancer community, they don't think it's a priority for their constituents. So they need to know this is a priority. We're not going anywhere. And we were able to turn up the noise and we've been turning it up ever since. Ian, is it frustrating to think that cancer is not top of mind for them? Or do you agree that they're just so saturated with so many things to think about? It is frustrating. I mean, my first meeting was with a representative in my district. And it was really difficult to kind of we so we went in there and talking about increases in cancer research funding. And at the time, I was 17 years old, I had no experience in policy. And I walked in and thought, there's no way that this representative is going to look me in the eyes and say that cancer research funding is not a priority for him. I just that wasn't even a part of what I thought. And when his first response was, well, we're going to need to cut some cut another essential program in order to fund cancer research funding. I thought, well, that's you know, that's your job. That's not my job Mm -hmm. to come in here and tell you about how important like how to like where to find the money. My job is to tell you that like I was diagnosed. My treatment was incredibly difficult for my family and my community. And there are people out there that are, are not as fortunate as me. And that I, I think it was a rude awakening into how important it is that we do have our stories and bring out like kind of all of our pain to bear in those meetings. So they truly understand that it isn't just one more bill. Like these are things that matter in lives. Right. And and Kate, these are like little TED Talks too. You have to memorize cadence 
and lingo and semantics and tone and gesticulations and the facial expressions. It, you, you literally are going through like an entire media training, even, and you're from media too. Yeah. What was that like for you? Yeah, it's something that I'm more comfortable doing, but watching my fellow volunteers were kind of being in this position that they'd never been before. Look, we just practice, we practice, we practice. So when we walk in that room, we are prepared. We know what questions are probably going to be coming our way. But you do. At the end of the day, you literally feel like you just ran a marathon. I mean, my just emotionally, physically, psychologically, you're just exhausted because, yeah, you've given everything to yourself that day. And you've, you feel a responsibility. Like when I walk in those rooms, I feel the weight of women who are suffering from cervical cancer as we speak or women who are about to get diagnosed and don't even know it yet or women who have passed. I feel the weight of them. And it's to me a responsibility that I'm their voice in that room in that moment. And is there too much or not enough access to these uh, legislators? I think there is in my experience, enough except the follow-up is always tricky. They always take them, for in my experience in Massachusetts, they, you get the meeting for the most part. It's always the follow-up and sometimes the commitment to actually sponsoring the bill. They'll yes you to death sometimes in the meeting and then it's saying, okay, but when are you actually co-sponsoring? So that can be a little bit frustrating, but you just have to stay on them and you keep following up and you let them know, hey, I'm not going anywhere. Where, what's your status here? I feel like having experience dealing with your credit card companies, customer assistance gives you a lot of handy tips and tricks on how to follow up with people. Yeah. And you just, you know, I think a great question to always ask in the meeting. So what can I bring back to my state and and tell the constituents about what what happened in this meeting today? And you put them on the spot a little bit. You can make them, you know. So, Ian, what are some of the legislative priorities you're working on in your district and what is your district? So I am in District 4 in North Carolina now. I mean, mostly I work on cancer research funding. So that's my big priority when I go in local and national. So we have three great research institutions in North Carolina and continuing to fund those and fund access to care. Medicaid expansion was the huge thing on that was also on the North Carolina priorities. Unfortunately, we did not get that done in 2022, but access to care is such a huge concept that, I mean, again, it's mind boggling that we have as a researcher. So I don't think I mentioned this, but I'm now a fourth year PhD student in the cancer biology program at Duke University. And for four years, I've been working on understanding cancer and working on kind of more translational research. So how drugs work in mouse preclinical models. And all that is to say, working on better treatments with fewer side effects for patients. And the idea that, you know, five, six, seven years of graduate studies, three, four years of postdoc training, a career in academia could all turn out a drug or a concept that never makes it to the patient because they don't have access to care. They don't have access to prevention or to treatment. Like that's also, like there's, I mean, we've talked about anger a lot, but it's really frustrating that kind of something so simple that where there's so much um, like federal incentive for North Carolina to make that decision it's so frustrating that as a researcher in that state that you don't feel prioritized by your state's representatives. Right. And the word care means different things today. You, you rattle off some multisyllable chemotherapies, but they've been around for 40 years. And today there's all sorts of phenomenal new things that are resulting from the Human Genome Project. I think one of you worked directly with the Genome Project, didn't you? 
Yeah. So my first day, my first capital visit was I spoke on a panel with Dr. Francis Collins, who's the director of the NIH, on the economic impact of the Human Genome Project. And so that was based on my undergraduate research, which was in biomarkers, which I think we're going to cover a little bit later. But yeah, just talking about how science impacted the overall kind of financial turnover. All right. So to Kate, then, you know, we're looking at so many different tests now and you don't have to go on chemo immediately. And this idea of how about you do this instead is a new idea. And I think the tech is is happening faster than the doctors can catch up to. But you mentioned this word. This word has been like the trigger word of my show forever. Biomarkers. Right. How many? Biomar- four syllables. Right. What the hell does it mean? Right? How many times can we say this before it trickles down to. Like you said, the the opportunity where you're 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 at a determinant that you're at a place where it's a word and and the doctors know it exists and you're receptive to it and they can explain it to you. What policies might exist that could mandate or get reimbursement for biomarker testing? So this is going to be our priority for next year. ACS cans. We're going to put all of our eggs in the biomarker test uh, basket. We you know we're going to ensure that insurance companies, including Medicaid covers biomarker testing so that patients can get the individualized care that they need. We exactly, we have made such incredible advancements in treatment against cancer. And the fact that an oncologist may be able to identify a type of treatment that, you know, his or her patient needs and that patient simply can't get that kind of treatment because their insurance company doesn't pay for it. And that hits home for me. I wasn't, I didn't have access to the type of radiation my oncologist's prescribed for me. My parents had to pay out of pocket for it. And so it's just mind boggling that insurance companies would be the ones dictating the type of treatment that you get as opposed to your oncologists who know your body. They know your cancer cells. They know your genome. They know your, you know, your physicality. So this, you know, the policies we'll be focusing on in 2023 will be ensuring that insurance companies cover this. Yeah, I've heard biomarkers are the new fork in the road. I like that. I, li- I like the way that rattled off someone else's mouth at this point, because it really, how do you explain this to someone that, that, that may be low literacy? I mean, 80% of the country isn't New York and LA. Right? So we have to speak the language of all Americans, but to the extent that, like you say, it could be so individualized. How is that fork in the road? There's something, you, you don't have to do this yet. There could be something here for you instead. It's irritating to the point of just like, like I don't know, like vehement hostility that there could be an opportunity to not get something and get something else and just not know it exists. Exactly. And I think that the more that patients walk into their oncologist's office informed than ever before, you know, the more we can really, the expectation should be that your care is individualized, you know, now. I think before it was kind of like everyone, there were certain cancers and this was a prescription for it and moving on. But the expectation should be that it's individualized because no two cancer patients are the same. I was a cervical cancer patient whose cancer spread to her paraortic lymph nodes. I mean, show me another cervical cancer. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, we're not the same. Our bodies are not the same. And so it's really important that the oncologists can do their job and that the, the 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 way is paved for them to do that. So in the spirit of how a bill becomes a law, in my Gen X schoolhouse rock you know, nostalgia moment here, how does a bill become a law, rhetorically speaking? What does it take? Let's say there is a biomarker test that's been approved or whatnot, and it's not quite through, you know, someone will pay for it. 
What does it take? Who do you talk to? How does that manifest through the legislative process to get either CMS or Medicaid or, or whatever to say, fine, we'll pay for it? From my perspective, it's walking into my legislator's office and saying, this is important to me. This is something that you need to get done for me. I think that's with ACS Can, that's the perspective that I have always been asked to bring is walking in and saying, this is important. I need you to get this done. And that's, you know, kind of when you're a part of ACS Can, they also have plenty of policy people that will brief you on what the legislation is, what is important, the kind of the main points that we want to get across about the legislation and the specifics. And they always give you this one pager about these are the important things that you need to get across in this meeting. And that's how a bill becomes a law. I mean, truly, from a patient's perspective, you walk in and you say, this is important to me and I need you to get this done because you work for me. Can either of you cite any success stories? I like when we could say, well, we fought for this. This happened and these people are living now. Well, I mean, Massachusetts just passed. Governor Baker literally just signed last week or the week before what is time? Step fit therapy reform bill, which we've been working on for years in Massachusetts. And step therapy is basically an insurance company can say, I know your oncologist, for example, prescribed you this medication, but we're going to put you on a more generic one. And you can fail first on that for, before we put you on the drug that your oncologist actually wants you to be on. Uh, it's been happening for years. And so this step therapy reform, we, we literally just got passed uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. After years of meeting with our state legislators about it, um, and it's huge for patients now because now they're, they'll be able to get access to the treatment that their oncologists want them to get first, and they won't waste any time failing first on other drugs. So that's huge. We've been able to – in Massachusetts, we've made incredible strides against tobacco reform and, and inhibiting sale of tobacco products to minors. And I remember one day – this was a, several years ago now, this bill was like almost passed and we got a phone call saying that the tobacco folk were in the state house trying to convince the legislators oh, to not God. sign the bill. Those lobbyists. Those, And so we all got on the phone and like we were just calling like left and right being like, no, this is American Cancer Society, Cancer Action Network. And, you know, these are the statistics about, you know, youth and tobacco use and cancer. And they we we outnumbered them in volume and we got what we needed passed. So we've seen it work and we've seen if you can, you know, get everyone together and it's a united front and you flood their offices with phone calls and emails, we've seen it work. Well, we didn't even get to that part. There were people on the other side that don't like what we're doing. Sure. Any experience with that, Ian? Yes. Man, I think that uh, tobacco is kind of, especially in a place like North Carolina that was built on uh, mostly tobacco money. They're definitely... The oppositional groups. I mean, recently it's been flavored vaping products for minors. That's been a really difficult thing to deal with, especially because kind of in the pre-regulated days of vaping products, the kind of when they were starting to become big, there was a senator in Wisconsin that made a podcast about how vaping products were the next innovation that was going to keep everybody from smoking. And they were so good for you because they were just flavor and nicotine and there was nothing bad in them. And this was before we knew anything about what was in vaping products. There was not any significant research into the levels of nicotine and those. And 
so he made the podcast with a small business owner from a vaping shop who was said that if this became a regulated industry, it would be very bad for small businesses in Wisconsin. And the conversation was entirely one-sided. They did not have patient advocates on. They did not talk about how these products could be, uh, as would be borne out in the future, could be marketed to children and young adults, could be a gateway for those young adults into smoking from vaping products. And so, it, yeah, I think that that was a huge kind of instance of these maybe products and companies that are counter to the mission bringing kind of alternative facts or alternative alternative, facts. Uh, alternative realities to yeah. what is a really really destructive and toxic substance right well let's wrap up quickly but i just want you reminded me of the, the, the huge we took our fighting we fought for no minor is going to tanning salons for many, many years, and we finally won that battle against the what the tanning salon lobby. I don't know who's on the tanning salon lobby, but at the same time, so so I love this conversation. I love the fact that you know it's like more than research. People can choose to take an act. I mean, who doesn't know about call your senator? But what does that tactically mean on the ground for you? And what ACS can does is they almost like bespoke give you everything they teach you they train you where can listeners i take what they're really angry about and go mess with the government kate fightcancer.org slash pod learn more about it you can scale up or down your participation you can become an action taker where you just get an email and you automatically click a button and then your email goes out to all your state lawmakers. You can become a legislative ambassador, a little bit more time. That's you're making calls, you're attending volunteer meetings. You can become, I'm a state lead ambassador for Massachusetts. I spend a lot of time, you know, meeting with legislators, going to D.C., working with my volunteers a lot of the day and month. So you can scale up or down your participation. It's just a matter of cleaning up your corner of the world and saying in my state, in my local community, I want this to change. You can be part of like a media blitz. You can write a letter to the editor and say the ACS can just passed, you know, helped pass this policy. This is why it matters. You can put something up on social media so that people know to call their senators all in one day to make sure that this bill is passed. There's little things you can do, but fightcancer.org and the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network makes it so easy. It's it's really just a step-by-step process. They equip you with all the talking points. You're never left kind of in the dark about what you're fighting for. And it's a really incredible way to turn your pain into your power. All right. Free Dr. Ian, final word. I agree. ACS CAN is a terrific way to get involved. And the biomarkers testing, which is already passed in four states, uh, Louisiana, Illinois, Rhode Island and Arizona, so 46 states that's going to be on the agenda for this year. So that's one thing that you already know that we can get excited about and become involved in. But there are so many other state-specific access to care and research priorities that you only have to use your story and understand that your story, regardless of what it is, is going to be impactful in this fight. And I mean, we talk about the cure, but for so many of us, it's their cures that are being evolved in many different types of cancer and every little thing can help. So every action that you can take. All right. Permission to be pissed. 
a channel to pay it forward to the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network is your path to messing back with the people that don't want you to have what you need. Kate Weissman, Ian Locke, thank you so much for joining me. The website again is fightcancer.org slash pod. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.